everybody. Hey, how are you all doing? Good? Cool. Um, thanks for all being here at the first talk at the DNAD New Blood Festival. Um, yeah, it's really good to see you all. I'm super excited to introduce our first speaker today, Mike McGee, uh, Chief Creative Officer at Framestore. So he's going to be talking to you guys about some of the processes of collaboration, risk and innovation um, that is the creative behind some of their amazing award-winning work. So if you can all put your hands together for Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Just going to power up. Okay. Yes, so hi, uh, my name is Mike McGee. I am the Chief Creative Officer at Framestore, and I'm also a co-founder of the company. Uh, we set the company up, uh, five of us, back in 1986, to work with the most challenging creative people we could find on the most interesting and challenging projects that were available. We've now grown uh, the business to over 3,000 people, we have offices, uh, we have four offices in North America, uh, a main office in London with 1,400 people in it, only two tube stops away at Chancery Lane. And we also have an office in India and an office in China. Now, since I started uh, working in the business uh, 33 years ago, the way we tell stories has completely changed. We don't now just make content for flat screens, we make content for VR, AR, MR, all the R's. Uh, we make theme park rides. We provide content for giant indoor and outdoor screens. We make apps for, the f apps for your phone, uh, as well as doing cinema and TV. So here's a little timeline of, of the company and to show you where, where we came from. The first job I ever worked on in the industry after leaving art school, I'm a, I'm a graphic designer by the way, that's my training, um, was to work on a pop video for a band called Aha. And the song was, uh, the video was for a song called Take On Me. And it was the first time, I think that was the, really the first piece of original immersive content where a live action person goes inside a comic book. Now, to work at Framestore, we employ mathematicians, physicists, computer scientists, and coders. And then they team, we team them up with people like myself, who's a graphic designer. We have fine artists, we have photographers, we have animators, we have writers and directors. And it's that mixture of science and art that enables us to solve the problems of our clients' storytelling. And it's a really collaborative place to work, there's very, there's, I don't think there's any job now that gets done by just one person. It's a teamwork of um, mixed skills. Um, I like to call us a bunch of unlike-minded individuals who solve problems together. So I put together a little film for you that kind of says with pictures what I've just used a lot of words to say.
So hopefully one or two projects in there you might recognize. Um, that film's only taken us 30 years to put together, so we're obviously very pleased with it as a company. But it all began, a lot of our success began when we took a risk on a project for the BBC called Walking with Dinosaurs back in the late, uh, the late 90s. Um, Jurassic Park had just come out and the BBC came to us and said, we can make CG dinosaurs now, can we please have a three-hour documentary full of dinosaurs? In the original Jurassic Park film, there's only six minutes of dinosaur action. If you look at the film and count the screen time, six minutes worth of dinosaur action. So we took on that challenge to create that BBC project on a BBC documentary budget and time frame. And the success of that project really gave us a global reputation for creating creatures. So anybody that wanted to put a creature in a TV commercial or in a feature film would pick up the phone and call us first. So we got to make the, the squirrels for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, one of our earliest uh, realistic-looking creatures. We make Aslan, um, and he has to look not only photoreal as a lion, but also be able to talk, so a talking lion. One of my personal favorites is we make Dobby for the Harry Potter films. And I love Dobby not just because he's, um, we gave birth to him, but because we also killed him off. <laughs> and I'm particularly pleased with that because it was the first time I'd actually seen people cry over a CG character. So this is a non-real character made in a computer and audiences are crying whilst they watch his performance. We make Paddington Bear. Um, Paddington, again, a very much loved character, bringing him off uh, a children's book and bringing him to life with uh, the love and care that we knew we'd have to give to the, the character that kids already love from the books. So we've made a whole host of CG characters. They're not just creatures. We've made superheroes, and we make physical effects. We make magic effects, lasers, uh, light beams, explosions. And we even build environments So for fantastic beasts. We've, we created the whole of um, an area of Paris in CG to put the story into. But more and more, what we spend our time doing now is not making the creatures look photoreal. We, we can pretty much do that. We can control the lighting. We can model them really well. We can mimic fur and um, feathers. The challenge now is how do we get a Dobby-style performance, a really emotional performance from a CG character? So a lot of our time and energy goes into analyzing human performances and then mirroring or replicating those onto a CG character. So this next uh, little film I've got to show you uh, is a, a little collage of our best performance characters. So if you'll notice that the camera's not flying around, it's not an action sequence. There's, in fact, if anything, the camera's very steady, very static in an emotional moment, often pushing in to a close-up of a creature. But when you watch this next film and try and work out what it is in each of the shots, that's drawing you in, that's holding your attention or making you feel something. And it's often the micro expressions, the eyes, a little, a, little, um, a little focus of the eye, a little raise of an eyebrow, a drop of the shoulders, but try and work out what it is that's making you feel emotional. Thank you. 
Okay, so you can see that the power in the shots, quite slow, quite slow moving, but packed with emotion. But of course, the ultimate character or creature is the human being, the human form. And we were asked uh, five years ago to put Audrey Hepburn into a TV commercial. Now, the script was very specific about what the director wanted us to do with Audrey. So we, we thought, well, could we cast a body double? That's our first instinct, is to try and capture it in camera. But we looked at lots of actresses, and nobody is Audrey Hepburn. She has very high cheekbones, and she actually has an 18-inch waist. So it's really difficult to find somebody that came close to Audrey. So I'll play the commercial. Ooh. Can we turn the volume down? I'll talk over the top. Yeah. So, um, so what we did is we shot the commercial on the Amalfi Coast in Italy, in the way you would a traditional commercial. And we cast two girls to actually be the bodies of Audrey. So one because she has an 18-inch waist, and the other because she has the highest cheekbones we could find in a body double. We've then treated the film, which was shot on a digital camera. We've graded it to look like old Technicolor film. We've added film grain on top. We've added scratches. We've even put a bit of film weave, as though the film is running through the gate of a traditional camera, all to make it have the traditional language of old film. So the actress were directed by the director in the way we'd direct a traditional TV commercial, but the girls had extra makeup applied to their faces. We actually painted their faces with a series of dots to act as tracking markers, not just to match the pattern on the dress, but to act as tracking markers for the rotation of the girls' heads. Because the ultimate plan is we're going to replace Audrey's head with a computer version of Audrey. So after we'd finished filming, we bring one of the girls back to Framestore, and we do a photographic shoot of her face. With about 125 SLR cameras, we capture all the skin texture, all the qualities of her eyes, her eyelashes, even the quality of her lips, so that we can mimic that into the model of Audrey. We looked at old film footage, old black and white pictures, and modeled uh, a version of Audrey's face, and then put the textures on top of them and then gave it to a team of animators to animate 
Audrey's emotional performance. So we had to work out how skin reflects and reflect, refracts light, how skin wrinkles and stretches. And it's really the most difficult thing to do because we're all used to looking at ourselves in the mirror every day. Any imperfection in that uh, final image quality, and we spot it straight away. So it had to be as perfect as possible. And what you see in the finished commercial from the neckerchief upwards is a 100% CG head tracked onto a moving, walking, acting live actress. So an enormous amount of work there. Ah, this telly's gone off? Oh, okay. Okay, so the amazing thing now, of course, is that we are now able to take that technology into real time. So it's something we've been trying to do for a very long time, is work out how can we have a real interaction with either a creature or a person in real time, so that I could talk, ideally, to Audrey. Well, this is the technology that we're using currently in our motion capture division. I don't know if any of you heard of motion capture? Yeah? So it's where someone puts a suit on, it has a series of tracking points on it, and a couple of scanners in the corners of the room will match my every movement and then translate that onto a uh, moving character. The clever thing here is we also have a headset on the, on the performer. She has cameras pointing at her face and through voice recognition plus facial uh, recognition of her facial performance. As she talks and moves, so she animates. Oh. There we go. Play. Yeah. So she animates the girl on the screen behind in real time. So that the girl on the screen behind is a 100% CG girl but she's been rendered through a game engine, and it's happening in real time. So it could be possible one day, very soon, for you to talk to one another as avatars in a virtual face, in a virtual space. Facebook have just, um, have just released a video very recently that shows an Oculus headset on a, on a person. They've made a scan of the person's head, there are cameras inside the headset looking at the performance of uh, the individual or the talking uh, face of the individual and then turning that uh, into action on an avatar of, well, it could be any one of us, and then placing that in a room with someone else who's sitting on the other side of the world. So that's always been Facebook's investment in immersive technology is to be able to have people able to sit in a virtual space but talk to one another looking photographically how we do today in this room. Of course, for us, the most obvious application is to take, uh, take that technology and apply it to our computer-generated characters that we've already made for films or TV commercials. And does anybody recognize this character, the Geico Gecko? He is the second most recognizable brand icon in the USA after Mickey Mouse. And he's an East End-accented lizard who sells car insurance to Americans. So he's, he's a bit like the meerkats here, in America, it's the Geico Gecko. And here, so we've made over 100 commercials with a gecko in it. And here he is, 
being animated by one of our artists. So we have an, we have an iPhone on the end of a head device. The iPhone is recognizing the performer's facial animation, facial performance, and then applying that to the gecko on a screen in real time. So now the gecko is able to sell car insurance on the web through a webcam to anybody sitting at home and actually have a conversation with them, sell the, sell the car insurance personally. It also has great advertising potential. If the Super Bowl is on, the gecko could come on at halftime and do a celebration just like the guy who scored the touchdown. And you can render this in real time. So it enables you to turn around animations and performances that would traditionally have taken weeks to produce in post-production. So where might all this go? Well, this is a, a little clue. This is something we, we made as a pilot for the BBC. It was a little test just to show a proof of concept. Um, somebody had this great idea to use Vladimir Putin as a chat show host. So he is going to interview uh, celebrity guests on the show, but be animated by someone in that costume around the back of the set. And this is how it was introduced on uh, BBC Breakfast News. Just going to do it. I love the face of the presenter on the left there. He's uh, <laughs> completely bemused. Um, but what would have been better on the breakfast show, actually, is would, have, would have been to have had Putin sitting on the sofa with them, because that would have been possible. He could have sat there and actually done an interview about the show that he was going to present a few nights later. But you can see where that potential could go uh, for bands like Gorillaz already. They could be doing a live show. Um, any character that's been made for a film could actually come alive and sit on any game show or any, uh, be on a, any chat show and, ha and happen in front of a live audience as well because they'd see him on a screen um, being rendered in real time. Okay, I'd like to just go back in time a little bit. It is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing this year. Um, and that happens to be one of my earliest memories of a child, as a child. So I'm giving away my age quite a bit here. But um, when I was younger, um, I, I was allowed to stay up to watch the first moon landing. And it really stuck with me because this is me, age nine. Um, I've worked out my future career, got it all mapped out. I'm going to be an astronaut. Um, that didn't quite work out, but we have worked on a lot of space projects. And gravity is probably a great example. Can I show, have a show of hands if you've seen gravity? That's quite a few, good, okay. So in gravity, the biggest challenge, I could talk about gravity for an hour, I'm not going to, I'm just gonna give you 10 minutes of gravity. We tried to shoot, if it, the hardest thing was trying to shoot somebody to look like they're in zero gravity when they're in a gravity environment. 
The director thought we'd hang the actors on wires, and then we'd turn them upside down, or Sandra would spin upside down, and we'd rub the wires out. So we tested that with a stunt girl. We turned her upside down, and we noticed that very quickly she changed color. She got very uncomfortable, so she couldn't perform. And even the way your skin hangs when you're upside down throws the illusion that you're not in zero gravity. So our solution was to keep the actors the right way up and let the camera do all the rotating. So the actor never turns upside down, Sandra's always the right way up, and the camera fires at her face, spins around and fires out again to create movement for her to come to and fro the camera. So we had to come up with new ways of lighting the talent, new ways of moving the talent, and new ways of moving the camera. We converted a car manufacturing production line robot into a high-speed motion control camera because the cameras didn't move quick enough back in the day. And I mentioned how the actors are always the right way up. One of the other challenges in zero gravity is that when you're spacewalking, everything you do slows down by about 25 to 30 percent. So how can you have somebody moving in slow motion, but then allow the astronauts to talk to one another in real time? You can't slow their voices down. So the solution was that we would only film what you see highlighted in red on this frame. Then everything else about the astronaut, the spacesuit, the helmet, the visor, is all computer modeled, rendered, and then animated by a team of animators. So we had 20 animators animating Sandra's space body moving in slow motion. And when you watch the film, if you ever go back and look at it again, the only live action in the shot is her face. So take a shot like this. It looks, looks like a huge set of a spaceship. It's actually Sandra on a few wires against a cardboard set. The whole of the spaceship is computer designed. Over 2,000 individual objects built, lit, rendered, and placed to make the scene behind her. She herself is sometimes on wires, sometimes she's on a bicycle seat like she is here, and other times she's on um, a different body rig that moves her. And we often have to morph from Sandra to Sandra to Sandra before we can put her over a background plate. In this shot, only George Clooney's head in the helmet is real. Everything else in the scene is computer-generated. Because so much of the film was actually computer, over 96% of the screen time was computer-generated. And one of our guys calculated that if you rendered gravity on only one computer and you wanted it finished today, you'd have had to have started the render off in 5000 BC. That's how many render hours went into making gravity. I talked a little about the different skill sets that we, that we employ at Framestore. On one shot in gravity, I just picked a shot, and I was told that there were 40 different skills of people that worked on that single shot. This is just a selection of the, the first page I could, I, I could find. And look at the different qualifications people have on the right-hand side there. But it's those mixture of skill sets that we needed to complete those shots for gravity. Of course, when, when these teams, when your teams of people are working so concentrated together, you get to know the people that work alongside you very well. 
And we often, because the projects go on for so long, um, give people a little memento to take away of the, t of the team of people they work with. Because several, several people join us as freelancers and go. People have little roles and they might do a piece of the project and then move on to another. So one of the things we do is we take a photograph of the team and you get a team photo. Gravity, because it took four and a half years to make, we did four photographs, one a year. The first one was taken after filming and we were about to send it out when one of our guys said, I've got a great idea. And his great idea was that Sandra Bullock has or had a hotline up to the International Orbiting Space Station. And she would call up to a female astronaut and ask her, look, tomorrow we're shooting a scene with a fire on board. What would happen in the real world? And, the other, and this girl, would, uh, the female astronaut, would tell her what would happen in the real world. So our guy said, wouldn't it be great if we could ask Sandra to ask the astronaut if we could email our crew photograph up to the ISS, have them print it out, hold it up, take a selfie, and then email it back, and that would become our crew photograph, the crew in space. So we all chuckled and said, well, that's never going to happen, is it? Sandra agreed to do it. The astronaut agreed to do it. We sent the picture off, and 48 hours later, we got an email back saying, tried to do it, but unfortunately, our printer has run out of ink. <laughs> Six months later, we did get an email uh, from the ISS, and it was this image, and it's six months later because that's how long it takes to get a delivery of printer ink up to the ISS. This is the gravity shooting crew pasted on the window of the orbiting ISS. And there was a second attachment, which was the one we asked for, which is the female astronaut holding up the crew photograph. I quite like this picture as well that we found about a year later. They were having a film night on the ISS, and they're projecting gravity onto a screen, and there's the matching perspective of Sandra in the, the, the same uh, orientation as we're seeing on the real ISS. So art becoming reality in a, in a vicious loop. Um, so let's talk a little bit about immersive entertainment now. On the movie Gravity, the director was trying to get the audience immersed. He, he tried to cut as little as possible in that film. There are only 17 cuts in 70% of the film screen time. Some of the shots go for 12 and a half minutes with no cuts. And he did that because if he can hold you in a single camera position and move the camera around without cutting, it's very difficult for the audience to look away. So he's trying to immerse you in the scene, make you feel like you can't, you can't look away. I found myself holding my breath when Sandra's oxygen was running out or, or clutching the chair because of the way he filmed those shots. And that absorption, that taking you into a scene, which I love this quote, um, well, it's actually a, a, a dictionary definition of what immersion is, which is providing a deep absorption in something such as an activity or a real or artificial environment. And this is what we're trying to do now with VR and AR. It's to stop... Passive, um, passive viewing of a flat screen will always be there. We're not saying we're going to replace the cinema, but there is definitely a world for these sorts of devices. So a headset where you can put on, um, you put a headset on and you're suddenly then blocking out the real world and we are able to transport you to a 360 environment that we can create in the computer. And something that really proved this to me was um, a piece we made for Game of Thrones five years ago. 
Any Game of Thrones fans in the house? A few, yeah? So there's a scene in there, if you're not familiar with it, of an ice wall, 700 foot high, and there's an elevator or lift that goes up the outside, a rickety cage lift that goes up the outside. So we rebuilt that lift, put audience members inside it, put a headset on them, and then the lift starts to climb in the virtual world. So people will grab onto the sides of the lift. We put a rumble strip in the bottom so the lift would shake, so they'd feel the shaking lift. And as they got close to the top of the, the ice wall, we hit them with ice-cold wind. We physically blow wind on them. And then, if that wasn't enough, we open the door and take them to the edge of the 700-foot drop and then start firing burning arrows at them. And this was the sort of reaction that we got from that. Reactions unlike I'd certainly seen watching people look at flat screens. People were coming out sweating, crying, shaking. It really moved you physically as well as visually. HBO really enjoyed that reaction, and they wanted to keep putting their audiences deeper and deeper into their uh, shows. So we've just completed a VR and an AR experience for the final series of Game of Thrones. And this is, this is how the... VR experience looked. At the moment, you can only try this at an uh, AT&T store in America, but I'm assured that it will... Actually, maybe it's out on the Vive as well. It might actually be out on the Vive now, so if, you have a, if you're lucky enough to have a Vive, you'll be able to try this out. But this is uh, the Game of Thrones experience. Uh, in fact, I'll just play rather than describe it. It's really hard to describe how visceral that feels. I tried it the day after I'd watched the episode on TV, and you really do feel like you're being surrounded by white walkers who are closing in on you. That was virtual reality. We're also working with augmented reality. So instead now of shutting out the real world, what we're doing here is we're creating experiences where we can all put a headset on here, still see one another, still be in this room, but now start to bring content into this room with us. Bring creatures in, bring characters in, start to see things where we can see each other's reactions, we can react together to something, and share the experience. This is something we've made uh, recently for Air New Zealand using the Magic Leap headset. It's a giant board game. It plays out on a tabletop. As I say, everybody sees each other reacting to it and acting, acting with it interacting with it. 
I will play the film and then give you an insight into how it works. I'm just going to jump forward now and just explain some of the things that are going on there. So when you have the headset on, Pete the Kiwi, who's the hero character, if I'm looking at the table, on that spot is the little Kiwi character, and he's talking to me. He's saying, hey, you're in the lead. You've got these guys. They're all tiring. You can win this game. But from the opposite side of the table, the girl that's looking at uh, the Kiwi from her side, the Kiwi, because it's in her headset, is reorientated for her. He's, he's rotated and talking to her. And he's saying to her, come on, you can, you can beat this guy. He's, he's getting tired. You can catch him up. So everybody is having their own unique personal experience whilst in this shared game. The point of view again, the bungee jumpers on the helicopter. The helicopter is flying around the room in 3D space. But when the bungee jumpers jump from the helicopter, again, they are orientated to your point of view. So they will jump out on your side of the helicopter, wherever you are standing in that room. This one I particularly like, where the, where the diver is actually breaking the plane of the surface of the table. And of course, the, my first reaction when he disappeared was to look under the table. And actually, when I looked under the table, the whale and the diver are actually there, waiting for their cue under the table. Because they're using the whole volume of the room, it just happens to have a surface plane that cuts the action. So again, stories that you can tell in a space like that with real objects, building parts of sets, and be able to see characters behind doors, under surfaces, or even rotate the whole set and see something completely different. And of course, what we learned was there's nothing more magical than little characters as well. Once you start seeing a little person moving and walking around on a tabletop, it's quite hypnotic. And of course, my first thought was, well, how long will it be before I can watch a football match or a rugby match and watch the teams in 3D walk around the table as though I am in the stadium but as God? So enormous potential there. And for teaching as well. Imagine being taught how the Battle of Agincourt happened with real armies on a real tabletop. I think it could transform the way we educate. Which brings us to the next, one of the final pieces now. Uh, and the challenge here, and this is quite unique because it, it, it called on every skill we have in the company. Our challenge was to put 30 school children onto, onto a 20-year-old traditional American yellow school bus. 
The school bus is driving from the school to the science museum, and the brief was, as soon as the bus got up to 30 miles an hour, instead of the children seeing Washington, D.C. out of the bus windows, somehow they would be transported to the surface of Mars. So that was the challenge, and this is what we did. So as, as a father myself, I'm, I find that really inspiring. When you see the kids' faces, when they, were, they, they immediately took to being on the surface of Mars, it wasn't a shock. They were just totally engaged, pressing buttons on the screen, but actually came off believing that one day they could go to Mars. So I think that sort of experience, that way of educating or giving people something that really resonates uh, can create memories for people, and I think that has an enormous potential in the future for how we educate, entertain, and inspire audiences. Uh, I'm just going to leave you with this image, because everybody loves a naked James Bond and the sun shining. Um, I put this image up because this is not actually Daniel Craig. This is a photoshopped uh, image of Daniel Craig's head, pasted onto a photograph of my body. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mike. That was incredibly insightful. And um, we've now got a few minutes just to hand over to you guys if anyone has any questions at all uh, to ask Mike. If you just want to pop your hand up. Um, the AR experiences that you 
shown the uh, New Zealand one. Um, is everything semi-transparent through the goggles? Um, because obviously we were seeing a video, um, a recording, and I'm just assuming like when you see it through the actual goggles, there's no separation between reality and what the goggles show you. Yeah, so, so in that case, um, the objects are transparent, but the ideal viewing place for it, if you were to go to a virtual cinema, call it that, you'd have a black environment, and then those objects would appear solid. But they could come off the screen and fill any auditorium. So, so for theater, for especially stage productions, or for cinemas of the future, the content won't be contained, well, doesn't have to be contained on a screen, it can actually fill a void around you. Um, but it will always be transparent if there's a stronger light behind it. Are you doing similar projects with the same tech still? Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah, it's an ongoing, because uh, VR is only four years old, five years old, it's such, it's so in, the, in its infancy. And what you're seeing here, um, even the bus, the bus is like a giant driving headset with a bunch of people inside the headset. Um, that technology is moving at a rate. I tried the Oculus Quest recently. I don't know if any of you have tried Oculus, but it's now available on Amazon for $799. And you can map out an area the size of a tennis court to, to play within. Some guys have actually, there's a video online of some guys mapping out their office and using all the space between the desks. And you can then build environments. The, 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 um, the, the VR or the technology, AI technology, will actually put walls up and contain a space that you define on the floor, so you can then use any space as a virtual interactive yeah. place. Thank you. Hi, that was amazing. Um, I'm Gary Embry from University West of England. I'm senior lecturer in the illustration department, and I'm running a research project, and we're looking at AR. Uh, one of the other researchers is doing a project uh, which he's just got funding for. It's called Virtual Maggie. So he's bringing Margaret Thatcher back um, in a series of documentaries. But one of the other research partners is from the legal um, department. He's uh, interested in the ethics of it. And I was kind of thinking with the rise in fake news, um, deep fakes and morph porn, what are the kind of <laughs> ethics uh, associated with this kind of technology, especially when you're not only um, using existing uh, living celebrities, but bringing back the dead. I was just kind of really fascinated with that side of it. Yeah, so we've already seen some things happening for that because we also, you already, on one hand you have Hollywood saying this is fantastic, we can bring any dead actor back to life. Uh, and we'd love to work on that film because that'll take a long time, cost a lot of money. But for actors that are alive today, uh, this is an interesting one. They can now sell their future image rights to films they're going to be in when they're dead today. It has a monetary value. But that also brings with it tax implications because the image rights for future films with a huge value, in America you have to pay tax on the inherited image rights and you end up with a massive tax bill as soon as the celebrity dies and leaves their estate to someone. So there's a whole legal um, area of business growing like mad in America. Artists, actors are having to consider what they will do when they're dead now. So they are already writing their own ethical guidelines for how their image can be used if, if, it, if, it, uh, if that happens to them. And act actors are also having their bodies scanned now, age 19, 21, 27. So if they, 
if they become successful, you have an absolute replica of them at, at younger ages and sort of, sort of doing a digital cryogenic storage of your image. But what we do um, today, when we were approached to make Audrey, her estate controlled every image that we made. Every nuance of her looks had to be signed by her sons who run her estate. So a lot of the ethics for us are controlled by uh, whoever owns the image rights for those individuals. But it's an interesting question. Would, you, would Audrey allow, would she have allowed herself to be in a top chocolate commercial, maybe? I don't, don't think she ate a lot of chocolate looking at her. Um, or or would, she, would she allow herself to do alcohol, sanitary products, you know, where, where's the line? So at the moment that's being controlled by her sons, but people are considering that now. Hi there. Um, you've got some really interesting work there, and I'm curious about um, where the briefs come from, or um, you say businesses come to you asking you to do stuff. Um, at any point, do you set the briefs or um, write anything yourself? Uh, I'm just interested in where that comes from. When, when we set the company up, we're asking where the briefs come from. When we, when we started the company, we were a vendor, a service company, so a director would come to us and say, I've had this wacky idea can you make this happen for me? And we would help realize their vision. But with technology now getting ahead of ideas, we almost have pieces of tech that people don't know what to do with. And often, if you design something now for a piece of tech that's here today, it's obsolete in three months before you even have a chance to get the execution of the piece done. So more and more, we're being asked to come up with the creative brief to write uh, or to imagine a piece of content for the technology and where it will be in 12 months' time. So more and more we are becoming creative partners with people who want to make things, and that's the way we talk about ourselves now as a truly creative partner, but, but that will solve your, your storytelling issues both creatively and technically. That's fascinating, thank you so much. Any other questions? Can I just say though, I think um, up until a few years ago, I thought 30 years in the business, I'd seen everything, I was just sort of going through the motions of, okay, so I'll wait for the next person to want the next big thing in a blockbuster movie, and we'll create an effect and then copy that in TV commercials. But recently, with all these new platforms, with immersive storytelling and immersive content, the digital world and the digital demand for content has exploded exponentially. And it's going to need people like yourselves that have grown up with the tech to tell the best stories with the future technologies. I feel like I have to translate everything I do from analog to digital and then digital to whatever we want to call it today because it's real time and it's immersive. But you guys are the future of storytelling. So I'm, in a way, I'm quite envious of your futures. So good luck to all of you. Thanks again, Mike. Um, we're going to take just a little break um, before our next speaker, but join us again at 1.30. We've got Lee Bofkin from Global Street Arts speaking. See you then.